we will continue this morning and worship uh, through the word. We are in the third week of the series called Battle Royale. We've spent a few weeks talking about these potential conflicts or conversations that happen um, in and around uh, faith life and what that means. But I want to remind you again, this might get redundant. This is only the third week though, right? But it might get redundant to say these things. But some things that we want to have as we approach this is overarching principles, right? And, and the first is epistemological humility, that we would have some humility about how we know what we know, how we've come to know what we know. It's an important thing. We're in a dialogue with others. We need to affirm truth where it can be found, right? So God is a God of truth, and therefore um, any truth we can find and we can affirm that it is true is honoring to God, and we can do that to further conversations. I share with you that these conversations we have are more of a yes and than a no but conversation. Um, I know there's times we have to say no, absolutely. As much as we're able, we want to say yes, that, that's true, and here's some more truth to build on. I've seen some very productive conversations because of their generosity toward one another, which I'm not sure we have a lot of any, in the current, uh, our current days. We want to be thoughtful and biblically conformed. That's our goal as Christians. And then we want to drive conversations because by the grace of God, through engaging in conversation with others, we might lead someone to consider believing in Jesus Christ. And I say that gently because ultimately it's up to God to save people, that people don't save themselves. We don't save ourselves. But fundamentally, these grace-filled conversations, these uh, God-appointed moments can become catalysts for people conforming to faith in Jesus Christ, which is his desire, as we learned last week, for all people. That's God's desire for everyone. They would come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ. And so these conversations can lead to that goal. So that's what we talk about because battle royale can kind of come off as a little like harsh and antagonistic. That's not the goal. But there's these things that we pit against one another um, that maybe aren't always so. And this is the third week in it. We're considering my rights versus God's best, a conversation uh, that we often have. I want to share with you. I want to... Uh, I thought it was interesting that Mike shared this morning uh, Proverbs. Let me see if I marked mine correctly. 15. I thought that was a very uh, appropriate, poignant um, on the slide here. I think if I'm not out of order. Yeah, Proverbs 14, 12 is right before it. But I wanted you to hear what Mike shared with us again, and then we'll go to 14, 12 as well. A gentle, this is uh, Proverbs 15, a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The tongue of wise commends knowledge, but the mouth of the fool gushes folly. And then, um, and for, Mike read more than that, but in 14.12, I want to read as well. There is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, it leads to death. Let's pray together. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for the opportunity we have to be together as your people, to learn from you, from your word, to, to be instructed by your Holy Spirit, our teacher, our counselor, our advocate, <clears throat> Father, that you sent for us. I pray this morning uh, that as much as it's up to us, we would lay ourselves at your feet and we would learn from you, that we would lay down our precon preconceived ideas, our, our, our notions, Father, and we would just surrender into your will and your word that you might change us, that we might live better in this life. And so, Father, for the conversation that we're about to have together, I pray there's uh, grace and understanding and wisdom granted by you because you are the lone source of those things. And may we be honoring to you as we, as we consider these things from your word. Would you give us an open mind and uh, um, soft hearts and open ears to hear 
what you have for us today. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I've heard it said before by uh, bygone pastors. I can't tell you how long, how long I've been listening to people, people preach, right? Maybe not as long as you think, but longer than maybe is uh, uh, expected. And uh, let's see what we got. There we go. There was this preacher one time, his old school preacher, I don't know who he was, and he said he always prepares every week with two things, a newspaper in one hand and a Bible in the other, right? It's this, it's this uh, intersection of us and the world that's constantly in play as Christians, and for the last 2,000 years of Revelation, we continue to see that play out every day. But I was thinking about that, and uh, I just recently heard someone say, we are all binging the news, and I thought, man, that's a great turn of phrase that we just, I don't know if you're like that just binging all the information out there for us these days I think in the old days when you think about a pastor having a local newspaper and a Bible to kind of consider these two things and see what uh, he I think the quote was to see what each side is doing but there's so much information available to us and things have gotten so heated that it's hard sometimes to step back and consider bigger picture things or lasting things, right? Even for those of us in the church, and, and maybe perhaps especially for those of us in the church who ought to be listening to more eternal things, we find ourselves listening to the noise. Um, I'd be remiss to not mention this week the tragedies that we've experienced, right? And it's such a profound thing because you think, well, what do you, you know, maybe if you don't watch the news, if you don't catch it, but I don't know how it's possible anymore not to do that, you would think, well, what happened this week? You know, I went to work, I came home, and I did my job, I did life, and, you know, every, everything's fine, right? But we are all part of some collective experiment about what's happening on a grand scale. I was heartbroken when I heard yesterday of a, the shooting at a synagogue, and no more heartbroken than I'd be if I heard of a shooting at a mosque or shooting at a church. I mean, I heard, I heard this week about a, a, a young man who would take a woman's life and then, and then flee into a church afterwards and take his own life. I, I heard a story about a, an individual who would, who would hate people so much that he would send bombs in the mail hoping that somehow either scare, terrify, or kill someone and, and this stuff. And it begins to weigh really heavy, uh, I don't know, on all of us. Like I think we begin to have some kind of a weight to it all. And then I'm reminded of the words that, that Mike shared this morning, you know, that uh, kind words turn away wrath, that we're, we're called to be a people of peace or people of grace or people of openness or understanding or somehow tend to the fray. There's these realities that we're con we often find ourselves on opposite sides of conversations. It's very difficult. I wanted to share a story with you. I went uh, a few years ago. I had a, 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 some of you heard the story probably, but I, I had a fellow pastor invite me as a fellow pastor. He said, hey, I want you to go with me to the capital of Illinois. We're going to um, go up there to support traditional marriage. You know, you support traditional marriage? And I'm like, absolutely. I'm a, I'm a huge fan. If you don't know that about marriage, uh, I'm a huge fan of marriage. And so I'm like, yes, let, okay. But I wasn't super excited to go to Springfield to talk about it. I just, that's not how I operate normally. I'm like, okay, sure, I'll go with you. And, uh, and I went up, and sure enough, there's thousands of people up there at the Capitol all celebrating God's design for marriage. Yes, into it. Like it, love it, right? Talked about, there were stages where people were kind of giving speeches about how God had, you know, brought them out of uh, brokenness and sin and brought them into new life, and the gospel is being shared openly in the streets. It was very fun. But there was also this kind of weird 
undercurrent. I don't know if that was, it felt hostile. I couldn't quite figure it out. But it was all people who agreed with one another. So it was really, really good. And then in the crowd, as I was walking around looking, there were three people standing on a step by themselves, holding signs silently, right? And it had, they had signs that said something about their right. Don't deny my rights. They weren't speaking at all. They were just standing there. And we went and we said, hey, praise God, this is great. And praise God. We went and we actually saw the congressman, which I had not done before. I had a conversation with our congressman, a super nice guy, and, uh, and talked about the need to be politically active and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, all right, cool, cool, you know. But uh, fundamentally, that's what happened. It was a big rally. I'm just going to share something with y'all. I'm not sure if this is good or bad or weird or what. But while I was standing there, I felt this desire to just stand with them. I didn't do it. I didn't. Because I thought, man, if my group, I probably would have to walk back from Springfield. <laughs> and not because I agree, but because I thought, you know, it felt three people against thousands. It just seemed like someone should be on their side. And, and it reminds me of a fundamental brokenness that we have in these conversations that people want to say, these are my rights. And we're going, yeah, but someone's on your side, right? And so we're going to talk about today that issue of my rights versus God's best. We talked about it a little bit last week with free will and God's sovereignty, but we're going to dig in today a little bit to this idea. I'm going to ask you to turn to Genesis chapter 2. Two. We're going to read a couple of verses out of there, and then it's on page, what is it, two of the books on the, the Bibles on the chair rows, so if you have one of those. And then we're going to read chapter three. All right, Genesis 2, 15 and 17, then chapter three, talking about, um, this is obviously in the Garden of Eden, the very beginning, right after creation. This is what the word says. That seems wrong to me. Yes, that's correct. 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. First task. 16. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat of it, you will surely die. Skipping down to chapter 3 now. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals of the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did the Lord, did the, I'm sorry, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will surely die. Verse 4. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and she ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God and was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. This is 
the story we call the fall of man. The fall of man, right? So you have God in his creation. It's all very good and everyone's hanging out and everything is just peachy keen. And he gives Adam one command. And by the way, for, for the record, this is before Eve, right? He gives Adam a command. Don't eat from this tree, he tells him. This is the tree. You're free. That could be called a right. To eat from any tree you want, but not this tree. So then later on we hear this temptation that comes her way that says, did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Did you see what he, he said? Did, you, did he really say you can't eat anything you want? She said, oh, no, no. We can eat anything we want. We just can't eat from that tree. And then what she say? And we can't touch it. Right? Can't go near it. There's like all these additional things, right? There's this thing. Or we will surely die. And then he says, you will not surely die. And it's a funny thing to think about, but there's this reality that Eve displays for us the reality that we can live how we want. We can live how we want. I mean, God put his people in a garden and said, just don't do that one thing. And that was the very thing that Satan began, or the serpent began to say, is that really going to cause you to die if you do it? Maybe if you just have a little bit of it, you'll be okay, right? And so they eat from the tree. Now get this, right? Adam is with his wife when this happens, Eve, standing right there and either being silent, certainly not remembering the rules properly, you know, and participating willingly with her. So this is not about any kind of a, uh, a gender war about who's at fault. It seems they were both more than willing to sin and do the one thing that God commanded them not to do. This reminds me very much of the people who would say, I have a right to do it. I'm here. The tree's here. The fruit's here. Why not? Why can't I eat it? God said, if you do, you will surely die. And the serpent said, are you sure you'll die from that? I'm not sure you will die from that. And so they take and they eat. But then we see the immediate uh, repercussions of what happens, right? So they eat it and their eyes are opened and they realize they're naked, which is something they, remember in the creation, they were naked and felt no shame and they covered themselves up. And then there's a really funny thing that says that they heard God walking in the cool of day and so they hid themselves in the, in the, uh, in the vegetation. So they, they actually, I kind of have this vision of being like camouflaged for hunters. <laughs> like they had made themselves some camouflage, like God will never see me now. Because they realized something fundamental about themselves that they were uncomfortable with. They realized that they were exposed, that they were naked, that they were vulnerable, that they could be hurt or harmed, that there was evil in the world. You remember that this was a whole conversation about what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it was revealed to them that there was real danger. And so they hid themselves. That's interesting to me that that would uh, be the way the story begins. People exercising our God-given rights to sin. Our God-given ability to be disobedient to the one who made us, the one who's comforted us or who's drawn us. You see, I, I wanted to make this, uh, share this this week because often I find in these conversations what seems to happen is that people on diverging sides of issues say, you can't tell me how to live. Don't tell me how to live my life 
life, right? And the truth is, it is your life to live. I can't fundamentally tell you, force you, how to live your life. Well, let's look at, let's look at a different thing here. So God has a better idea then after this. This comes in Exodus chapter 20. You want to turn there. It's on page uh, 52. Exodus 20. We're going to read 1 through 20. This is one of those passages you go, oh yeah, yeah, I know what this is. I know what this is. And God spoke all these words. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them because I, the Lord God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of their fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commands." You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the seventh day is a rest of Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, neither you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your messenger, uh, your maidservant, nor your manservant, sorry about that, uh, nor your animals, nor the alien within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but on the seventh day he rested. Therefore, the Lord has blessed the Sabbath day and he has made it holy. Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving to you. You shall not murder you shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or maidservant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. When the people saw the thunder and the lightning and heard the trumpet and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear and they stayed at a distance and they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have us speak to God or we will die. And Moses said to the people, do not be afraid. God has come to test you so that the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Isn't that funny? That after this sin in the Garden of Eden, God says, now here's some basic rules of life. Here's some basic operating procedures for my people. And the first is that I am God and there is no other. Right? I am God and there is no other. And this is formally known as the Ten Commandments. I mean, I'm not sure how many times you actually study the Ten Commandments, but and we're not going to do it today, but often we'll see them listed in front of a courthouse, right, where judicious decisions will be made, or on a wall at a church, or maybe someone's home, rarely. You will see them posted as notice. This is how we live our life. These are the rules of living. And God establishes all these kind of his ideas for how people ought to live. And it's to, it's to um, you heard at the end there, to instill some faith fear of the Lord God who is God that we might not sin in this life 
Interesting to me, by the way, that eight of the ten are prohibitions. Things you ought not to do. Like, you should not have any false gods, or you should not have any gods before or beside God. There should be no other little g gods in your life that you bow down and worship in any way or form. You shouldn't have any false gods, gods that aren't gods at all. You shouldn't be making things that you worship with your hands. And then it goes through and it says what? You shouldn't misuse the name of the Lord God, right? You shouldn't murder people. I mean, some of these are kind of interesting. The fact that you have to write that down, I mean, the question becomes, why does God have to say these things to people? How many of you in here would think it's okay to kill someone? I don't see any hands. And yet, somehow, for some reason, God had to say to people, you shouldn't kill other people. You shouldn't murder people. He said you should not commit adultery. That's an, in fact, he had to say that, right? How many people here think you should have adultery, have adulterous relationships? Don't raise your hands if you think that, right? But, but we live in that, that, no, yes, you can have open relationships, right? No, God says you shouldn't be doing that. Um, you shouldn't steal from other people. Shouldn't give false witness to people. Lie. You shouldn't lie. There's a really simple way to say that. And you shouldn't be envious or covet things that, don't, that God hasn't given to you. It, some basic rules of life. There's only two that are positive, pro, the positive things, right? What are they? Keep the Sabbath. Honor your mother and father. Uh, tell me if I'm reading it wrong, right? Those are the two things you're called to do in life. God's like, here's two ways to live, and here's eight things you should never do. And you'll have what? A good life. I remember whenever I was thinking about this <clears throat> and thinking about the idea of the commandments and the rules, and I've confessed to you many, many times that I'm a rebel by nature. If there's a rule, I just automatically want to break it. I totally get Adam and Eve in the garden. It's a sinful thing, but I just can't. I just feel drawn to that. I don't know if you're like me. The speed limit's 45. I got to do 47 or 52. I just got to because they're not enforcing it at 45, right? Whatever it is. I remember um, we were... Uh, we were living in our, 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 I always thought, oh, I'm going to say this, I always thought that rules are there to keep me from doing things, right? That's what I, th I think I sense in this whole, like, don't tell me how to live my life. It's all about losing something, not, not having something. That, that somehow God's trying to restrict us in this corner where, where we're not allowed to do things that we really want to do, like murder someone. <laughs> yes? Like we're being told that we can't live our lives the way we want to. Um, but then I had a friend of mine who explained the commandments of God differently. Not as a restriction on freedom, but an allowable space for freedom. It's amazing if you read the Ten Commandments, all the things that God didn't command. I know then it's coming to Jewish law. It's like 427 laws, a whole bunch of things you can't do and can't, should do and all that. But at this time, it's pretty simple. Everything else, it's kind of like the garden in, you're at the beginning. One rule, don't eat from that tree. That's the rule you break. Okay, here's 10 rules. Those are ones. Okay, here's 427 rules, <laughs> you know. Um, but I remember whenever um, we were living at our first home in Highland on Lemon Street, 
we, we had this um, awesome house. It's a brick house, really nice house, really narrow, small lot to mow. It was kind of a really cute house in the neighborhood, old part of Highland. And not on Washington. I say Washington. is on Lemon Street. Yeah, Lemon Street. And, um, but in the backyard, uh, no one had fences in our neighborhood block. Like, none, none of us had fences. And I remember when we got the house, and Chris started saying, you know what? I want to have a fence. And I'm like, nobody has fences. Like, no one's going to like a fence if we put up a fence. Like, you could walk out and go, hey, what's up, Mitch? Hey, what's up? You know, whatever the other neighbor's person's name was. <laughs> and, uh, and talk to your, and it felt very kind of communal and open, and you were very vulnerable and transparent, and it was great. <clears throat> And my wife didn't like it. She's like, no, let's have a fence. And uh, we have small children, and, and they would never play outside. And I, I'll never forget this, because we were talking about the Ten Commandments whenever I was going to school, and about how God's rules are not meant to be punishments, but freedoms. You can do anything else you want. Just here's the boundary. One tree. Here's the boundary. Ten rules for life. And uh, so we, so of course, like any good husband, or you know, however you would do the math on that. We got a fence. <laughs> and I had to apologize to my neighbor. I'm so sorry to put it with fence. I'm sorry. But guess what happened? The kids immediately loved the backyard. They were out there all the time. They would go up to the very edges. We, we had some boundaries before, but they were kind of permeable boundaries, and so they could go through them. There were bushes, and they, and they took them out, and we put in a real hard fence. And it was really helpful to our kids playing in the backyard. They began to uh, really enjoy that space. And it was a visualization for me of the reality that it wasn't what we were trying to keep the kids from doing, going to the neighbor's yard. It's what we were trying to help the kids go and do. Enjoy the yard that we have. It's ours. You can play out there. You can play anywhere out there you want. And that... It reminds you what's happening here with God's better way, God's better idea. Well, why would this be a problem in life anyway? Right? I mean, what's the big deal? We, I feel like we're pretty sophisticated culture. We have a clear way forward. Um, we know what we're doing. If you ask us, we will tell you how smart we are. Why is it a big deal? Because self-determined rights uh, can be wrong. And this is something that we ought to really get through our heads, and I need to get through my head as well, that our rights can be wrong. I'm going to share with you from Jeremiah, my favorite prophet, chapter 17, verse 9. He says this, the heart is deceitful above all things, and look what the word says, beyond cure, that there's no cure for the heart's deceitfulness. Who can understand it? Have you ever heard that saying, the heart wants what the heart wants? That becomes our license for any behavior we have in this life. And we justify it by our own means. We say, well, it must be right, right? Because I feel it in here. I, I, I believe it to be true. But the prophet says, no, the heart's deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Or we shared earlier today, Proverbs, there's a way that seems right to a man or a woman, not being sexist there, but in the end, that way leads to death. Uh, another really quick story. It was really interesting last night how much you can be absolutely wrong and think you're absolutely right. We were working chains last night at a football game. That's where we little markers up and down the fields, you know, and we had a turnover, possession turnover, I think is what it was, and, uh, and there's three guys, Earl and myself and another guy named Herb on the chain gang. Well, I run up to uh, the marker and I stop. And Herb comes up to me, and I'm like, no, you're going that way. And 
Earl's coming to me. It's a really complicated change procedure. <laughs> but basically, I was telling Herb to go back down the field in, in a playoff football game, by the way. And Herb goes, and he starts to go, and he's like, no, wait. And Earl's like, no, you go that way. And I was so convinced I was right. I started to argue with Earl and Herb for a second. It was brief, right, Earl? And then I'm like, oh, no, wait. I'm probably wrong. I'll just move down here. And I was absolutely wrong. And Herb said, you had me confused. And I said, you know, there's nothing more dangerous than being wrong and convinced you're right. Isn't that true? I was convinced in the moment I was right, to the point that I would disagree with people who obviously know more than I do about this. And I go, no, yes. And I was even able, almost able, to override Herb's knowledge of what he was supposed to do. Because in the end, I was wrong. But this is no trivial game, right? This is a big deal. The reality is that uh, these ways that we think are absolutely right, that we feel absolutely correct in, and this is the danger for us all, church, can lead to death. Can lead to death. And that's a serious issue. Here's some other problem. I mentioned this last week, and I want to hit it again today, and it's this, that God will uh, give us our way. Oh, that's not the right one. This one is it. God will give us our own way. You might not think that that's true. There's a couple places that I found that in Scripture. I'm not trying to proof text on this at all, but there's a couple places I found it in, in Scripture. We're going to turn to one in a moment, but here's one from the Psalms. Hear, O my people, and I will warn you. O Israel, if you would but listen to me, these are the people that God loves, right? You shall have no foreign God among you. You shall not bow down to any alien God. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt. Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. But my people would not listen to me. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices. That's surprising to me, right? That God will actually get to a place where he'll say, fine, if you want your way, have your way. Right? I want my rights. I'm going to demonstrate my power. And God's like, if you ask for it long enough. I mentioned this last week in passing. I don't think, but I want to just mention it again. And this is an honest, not, I mean, this is really where I live my life so often. I want what God wants for me. I want what God wants for you. And I am convinced that there's some moment we can get to where we think we know better than God as if like I was arguing on the football field that I'd argue with the creator of the universe about what's truly good or right or holy or beautiful or purposeful in my life that he hasn't given me. You see? And that's a scary verse then. My people would not listen to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own devices or desires. So God gives people over. Now there's a more uh, familiar passage that we know about this, which is from, oh yeah, there was one more thing. I want to hit this before I go too. This was a follow-up on that. He says, if my people would but listen to me, if Israel would follow my ways, how quickly I would subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. So this idea that with obedience comes the blessing or the protection of God that he actually fights 
for us. But this is the place we most often would think of this, or I do anyway, and it's from Romans chapter 1, verses 24 through 27, and then, or 24 through uh, 32. You can turn there as well, 782. This is about that same idea that God will turn us over to our own ways if we press the issue long enough. Therefore, God gave them over in their sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. You might notice already we're taught those are the same fundamental issues that God had lined out in the Ten Commandments. <laughs> don't have false gods. Don't worship created things. And it says God gave them over to worship um, created things. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. 26. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for each other. Men committed indecent acts with other men and received in themselves a due penalty for their perversion. Verse 28. Therefore, since they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, he gave them over to a depraved mind he, to do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful, and they invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. That's interesting. They are senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. And we have here in, in Romans uh, chapter 1 this degradation of humanity, this loss of what's fundamentally God says is good in us, right? And so we have this realization that... Um, that uh, that it's our own undoing. But what I really wanted to notice in this, we've, we've talked, you hear this verse quoted a lot, right, and preached on a lot, but what struck me was that three times in this passage it says God gave them over. God gave them over to do what ought not to be done. God gave them over to defile themselves sexually. God gave them over. So this wasn't like a one-time thing where they just accidentally fell into a decision and accidentally made a mistake, right? But that they persisted. There's this idea that they're persisting in these states of being that are not honoring to God, that are things that ought not to be done. <clears throat> and there's categorically everything is lumped in here, right? And then he gives them over. And I've said it, and this is true across the board, it's some truth we can identify when someone says, I have my rights. And we can say, yeah, you, you, you do. It's terrifying what you can do to yourself, right? But then even for those who are believing, we can set before the holy God of the universe and say, I want my way. I want my way and be given over. Some might take issue and say, now, wait a minute. If you're a believer, you're not going to do these things. I get it. But believing gives the opportunity for obedience. The Holy Spirit we're going to talk about that at the end here, is an is a advocate for obedience to the commands of God. But there's still obedience to be had. So you have all these things kind of unpacking. 
Their hearts are being darkened. They think their wives are foolish. In verse 22, we didn't read that today. And then he gives them over because of their darkened hearts or darkened minds to sinful desires, to pursuing. What you will notice about everything that's listed there is it's all about this life now. <laughs> it's all these, we would call them fleshly desires or carnal desires, right? It's the things that I think I should be able to have and enjoy. Who cares what God says about it? It's good for me. It's my right. It's my ability to do so. And so you have that kind of listed out, running through the list. And then I want you to see the result, right? Because I think it's interesting. It says he gives them over, he gives them over, he gives them over to things that ought not to be done. But then in verse 29, there's a key word. It says they have become. <laughs> so again, it's not something that you instantly are. You become. And that's my big concern, honestly, for myself and others and our, our, our nation and our world is we become these very unsightly, unseemly, manifestations that are not God's purpose for us because we're exercising our rights. Our rights. Yes? What happens? They become filled with every kind of wickedness. They become filled with every kind of evil. Look at every kind of greed, every kind of depravity. Those are all rooted in the Ten Commandments. You shouldn't envy. You shouldn't be greedy, right? They're full of envy. They're full of murder, the word says. You wonder how does someone get to a place where they feel the right to kill someone else, to murder them? But they feel the right. They, 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 they sense it. I, I have the power. I have the ability. It's permissible for me. They're full of deceit. They lie to each other. They bear false witness. They're full of malice and ill content toward each other. They're gossip slanders and God haters. Arrogant and boastful. God help us, right? I mean, how many times are we in that category? Senseless, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. And look in the middle of it, it says they disobey their parents. I mean, that's another direct violation, right? Honor your mother and father. Given over to our sinful desires. We do these things. See, the funny thing about the Ten Commandments before them is that they were all violatable. You could violate all the Ten Commandments. And here they go again, the manifestations of the brokenness. God gave them over. And the result is a sinless, or sin-filled, hopeless, broken life. Right? That's pretty tough. That's pretty tough. So we have our rights and we have God's better plan, and we have our predilection to go our own way and have hard hearts and turn away from God. But then we have this, which is God's, God has a better way for us. And I don't mean just for, I mean for all of us to move forward together, right? I'm going to pull this from uh, Romans uh, 12, 1 and 2. If you're already in Romans, I don't have it on the screen, but you can turn there just by flipping a few pages over to Romans 12, just so you can see it comes right after this in the book. The word says this, Therefore I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer yourselves as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, because this is your spiritual act of worship. So the first thing is, you give up your rights. You surrender your rights unto God's purpose. You offer yourselves, you can 
fairly say your ability, your powers uh, as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. And then verse 2, do not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't keep living life the way the world lives life. Don't keep conforming to these pre-built molds that people say, that's fine. That's permissible. That's allowable. You can do that. But instead, be transformed, changed, completely made new with the renewing of your mind to think differently. And then he adds on this tag here, which is beautiful. And at that point, you will be able to test and prove what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. This is God's way forward. Giving our whole selves over as acts of sacrifice to him to be glory, glorifying to him and then letting him transform our minds to think differently changed fundamentally changed this is the way we are to live in the world this is the way that we can live uh, differently than the world um, in the world but not of the world engaging in meaningful ways I'll share with you also from first corinthians oh i didn't pull it all up there here we go though first corinthians 10 13 as a way of encouragement because sometimes i've heard people say Listen, I have rights. You know how hard it is for me. And I have to say to them, you're right, I don't. You don't have my struggles. You're right, I don't. And you don't have my struggles. You don't know how hard it is for me. <laughs> but not for that, you know. Like for other things. I have all my own struggles. But then we have this great word of encouragement, I think, from 1 Corinthians 10 that says, no temptation has come upon you except for that it is common to man. Like it's, it's everyone's tempted in certain ways or tested in certain ways. But look at what it says. God is faithful. God is able to deal with all of our temptations. And that means all of my temptations that are unique to me but common to man and all of your temptations that are unique to you but common to man and all temptations of all people and, and even the... Um, the temptations like in the garden, right? That there was a moment that God in that moment was being faithful that they could have chosen obedience because God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will provide a way out so you can stand up to your temptation. This is the hope of the gospel. Don't miss that. See, if you're going to talk about what I have a right to do, how I have a right to live, you're on the wrong conversation. The reality is we all have ways that we fail or struggle. And in the middle of the fight, in the middle of the battle, God is providing a way out. He's providing a way through it, through the struggle, transforming us, transforming our minds. I don't know if you've had that experience in your life, but I pray that you have, and if you haven't, I pray you would have it. I pray that you would, you would pray you would have it, right? If there's a way that you struggle with sin in your life, a real way that for you, and I'm not asking you to confess it this morning before us or anything like that, but if there's something in your life that you say, Bill, you don't even know how much I struggle with this. You have no idea. If, if you knew, you wouldn't even want to talk to me anymore. You wouldn't let me come into church anymore or whatever. Listen to me. In those moments, I want to encourage you to pray to God and say, God, you show me the way through this. Show me the way out of this because God is faithful. And when you or I are tempted, he will provide you a way out. He'll provide you a way out. And that's the reality. And then we get to experience God's 
provision in our testing and temptation. God's provision even in our obedience to him. That's the moment. That's the moment that we are to reach out to God, cry out to God. A couple more thoughts here. Later on in 1 Corinthians, let me see if I have it marked here. I have Galatians. 1 Corinthians, uh, our rights should not cause others to sin. And this is going to be in uh, 1 Corinthians 10. Oh, yeah, it's, it's right there after it, uh, 23 and 24. This is Paul writing. He says, look, everything's permissible for you, like, but not everything's beneficial. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but should seek the good of others, right? And this is a little different context. Now, some of you are scholars are going to go, wait a minute, this is a different context. Yes, I'm like, meat sacrifice to idols and permissions to live a life free of worrying about that kind of stuff. But the same is true that we are, that our freedoms should not cause another person to sin. Our exercising our freedom or our rights should not cause someone else to sin because it's therefore sinful. And the way he wraps this up is he says, so whether you eat or drink or anything else that you do, do it for the glory of God. Like that's how we're called to live in a glorifying manner to God. And sometimes that means that we restrict our own freedoms for the sake of someone else. That we lay down our rights that someone else might not sin. Final thought then. And this comes off as cliche, but it's not cliche at all. The truth is that Jesus is God's best. This, you know, often I talk to people and they, they're cool with Jesus they don't, they don't believe the gospel. They don't like the church, but they go, but Jesus, we're cool with Jesus, right? But Jesus is a hard man to be cool with if you don't, if you don't um, believe the gospel or get what he's doing through the gospel. And there's this verse right here that's pretty scary. It says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I say? You don't obey my commands, right? Um, how can you say that? How can you call me Lord, Lord? Um, by the way, I don't know if you noticed that little faux pas I made at the beginning here where in the garden the serpent said, did God really say? I actually said, did the Lord really say? Isn't that interesting? Uh, he's not referring to him as one who has authority. He's referring to like this kind of, you know, God, this external, did God really say? Not the Lord who commands your life. Did the Lord really say? But here Jesus says the opposite. How do you call me Lord, Lord, but don't do what I say? Or another way you can say this is from the Gospel of John, chapter 14, verses 15 through 17. Softer, maybe, or a more positive way to say it. If you love me, you will obey what I command. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever, the Spirit of truth. You know him, because he lives with you and he will be in you. This counselor, the spirit of truth dwelling in us, right? And so this is our hope and our way forward. I talked to you, I said earlier, you know, in this moment of crisis, you cry out, God, show me the way through it. And then the next part of that prayer you can add right on the end of it is, God, show me the way through it. And then God, will you give me the power? In the name of the Holy Spirit, will you give me the power to, 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 to make the decision now? To make the right decision and to do the right thing. God, there's no temptation that's not known to man, but God is providing a way out that we might not sin against him. And so we have uh, that 
gift of the Holy Spirit given. And Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And the Spirit, the Counselor, will guide you in all these ways. And so we have this hope, this way forward in Jesus Christ. And then there's a how we should live here. Galatians chapter 5, verses 13 through 16. You, brothers and sisters, were called to be free. But do not use your freedom to indulge your sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. And then this is telling you, I want you to see it. Yeah, check this out. I, given our current context, is this worth considering as God's word? If you continue biting and devouring each other, you will be destroyed by each other. So I say, live by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of your sinful nature. There's a reality in the middle of all this kind of infighting and hate and envy and angst and hostility that there's this devouring that's happening and that the truth is that God's providing a way out for us through his gospel, through his word, through the totality of his revelation to us that we can live into. I hope that makes sense. I hope we believe that fundamentally we're ambassadors of truth and grace. That we're called to show up, to be uncomfortable, to speak truth, and to love people. Hmm? Or to continue to love ourselves even when we're falling short. That we would find God's way forward. That's the truth. Jesus provides a way. I want us as a church, as individuals, as a collective group to overcome sin in Jesus' name. Not by our power, but by the gospel. That's my prayer for you. Pray with me if you would. Oh, Father God, we thank you so much for the truth you've given us in Jesus Christ, for the revelation you've given us through your word, for the way that your whole text, the whole scriptures are knit together in a way to encourage us to be faithful to you that you are the faithful God. Father, I want to pray right now for those uh, of us in this room who have those areas of our life that we go, oh, I don't want to deal with it or I'm not thinking, I, you know, and I got that stuff from me, Lord, you know that. And brothers and sisters who have the stuff in their life and that you would be working in those areas. Oh, Father God, would we depend on you more for that, depend on you more for a way forward, more for navigation through the mess. Help us to be people of truth and the gospel and grace. Help us to love mercy. Help us to honor you in this life, to give ourselves as sacrifices to you. And then, Father, may we never be afraid of your Holy Spirit's work. May we have courage to stand under your authority in the power of the Holy Spirit and be transformed. Will you do that work for your glory? I pray that we will be submitted to your will after your way. Love you so much. Thank you for the truth, the way you've expounded it in our hearts. Help us live it out this week. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.